Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about Wix. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. We're a country of laws, right? We stand by those laws all the way back to 1776. It's mission first. What I'm looking at is when I'm there and I see an 11-year-old girl that's covered with scars down her face because the Taliban said she can't go to school because she's a girl. So when she's walking to school, I'm going to throw acid on her. No, I cannot exist and let that happen. I just can't. That's happening in Pakistan, right? So So send me. Send me. Today's show is brought to you by Men's Warehouse. It's time for the 10th annual Men's Warehouse National Suit Drive again. Donate your gently used professional attire, including suits, dress shirts, dress shoes, ties, and more to any men's warehouse store from July 1st to 31st and give a man the chance to transform his life. The goal is to reach 275,000 donations, so be sure to spread the word by using the hashtag GiveASuit. Visit www.menswear, that's spelled W-E-A-R, house.com slash national dash suit-drive for more information. Again, that's www.menswarehouse.com slash national-suit-drive. Remember the dashes. As a thank you for donating, you'll receive a coupon for 50% off regular priced retail items and get $10 off your $50 purchase when you text NSD to 66960. Today's episode of The James Altucher Show is brought to you by our latest sponsor, Beachbody On Demand, an online fitness streaming service that gives you unlimited access to highly effective world-class workouts. You can stream over 600 different workouts as well as extensive nutritional content, including a first-of-its-kind cooking show called Fixate. 
This is a brand new service, but already has over a million members. And now you can claim a free trial membership when you text James to 303030. Get full access to this entire platform for free. Just text James to 303030. So Tim, I'm just going to start. All right. Tim Kennedy, MMA expert, special forces, ultimate fighting champion, multiple black belts of like forms of karate I've never even heard of. Like, but here's, here's one of the things that's really interesting to me about talking to you. If you take your life, usually when I interview somebody, you take their life and they take my life. There's some places I could kind of say, okay, I could relate to you over here. or We had this similar experience here. Um, you and I have almost nothing in common. So I mean, I mean I, I, we're four minutes, forty seconds to the interview, and we disagree already. Yes, um, <laughs> and I'm not trying to disagree with yeah. you. I think this is an interesting thing. It's obviously, uh, I'm I'm very interested in peak performance, and you're a super peak performer in a lot of different areas. So that's what we'll we'll talk about. But it's a challenge. It's a creative challenge for me to to figure out how to relate. Yeah, well, I think that's the commonality. You know, if I look at your life and the trajectory that your life has had. Um, the way that you've approached problems, you've never been a linear thinker, have you? Like the, everything not. that you've looked at, um, where normal people would be like, "All right, here's my problem. Um, this is a big problem." At that point, you've already been like, "I don't care about the problem. I've already sidestepped, and I'm looking for a solution." So, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a good way to put it. It's the sidestepping that's the skill. It is, and and that's the type of person. And I think we actually have a lot more in common. While our courses, you know, in in those respective trajectories are maybe going in opposite directions or by choice have gone in very different occupational fields, the way that we have accomplished the things that we have and the way that we look at problems is very similar. We look for solutions. So, so okay, so, so I mean, we can kind of go through the bio, which is fascinating, just all the things you've accomplished and that you've done, but Give me an example, like, you know, there's that famous uh, Mike Tyson quote where, you know, you could have all the plans in the world and when someone punches you in the face, the, the plans are out the window. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've been, I've seen the YouTube videos, you're, you've been punched in the face quite a bit in the ring. Probably too much. Yeah, kicked in the face, punched in the face, strangled, whatever you call it. Because ultimate fighting, there's, there's basically no rules. Like, it's just, you're, you're, like, it's a battle to the death, practically. It's a fight. And when, when... What's the what's what's the moment when you're in a fight when you've been the most scared that oh my god this is not just a career thing like I could get damaged here and I don't know what to do. I've never been scared in a fight. A fight is a sporting event. We, there, there's actually somebody that is dedicated in the cage to my safety and that we follow the rules. Um, but ultimate fighting stuff's happening, you know that they're not always seeing. I assume. True, but not very much. A lot of the athletes, especially at the, the level that I compete in, you know, a top 10 in the world um, type caliber opponents, well, I'm truly fighting people that have been athletes their entire lives, NCAA champions, um, you know, world champions and other different forms of martial arts um, or pugilistic competition. And uh, so most guys fight pretty fair. You know, they're not like trying to put a thumb in the eye or bite somebody's ear. Like that, that doesn't happen. Uh, we are there to show that we're the best fighter on the planet. It, that is vastly different than, than what I've done in war, where 
people are trying to kill me. People are trying to blow me up. People are trying to shoot me. People are trying to stab me. They're trying to poison me. Uh, that those are different things. One's right. a one's a sporting event. So I've never been scared in a fight because right, it's just guess, a fight. I guess because also now that you put it like really in context, compared to these real world situations where it's not like a sporting event, there's actually guns and other things at stake. It's like much higher stakes. What's a moment there where you you thought, okay. I really have no idea what the outcome is going to be, and I have to solve a problem. My very first combat tour, I was in Iraq, and it was the first time I was ever in a real gunfight. The helicopters were landing, and you have what we call brownout, whether it's kicking up the dirt, and you're on, under night vision goggles, and the, the static electricity from from the dirt that's hitting the ro- the, the rotors, uh, it's it's almost blinding. It looks like millions of fireflies that are flying. And you're on the ground, you're on your knees as the helicopters are taking off and that rudder wash, the brownout is still just kicking up all this dirt. Uh, but then you see flashes and you're trying to figure out, are, the, are those flashes gunfire or, or is, is that dust particles that are, that are in the air that are hitting each other and having that static electricity that I'm seeing like a firefly through my night, night vision goggles. Um, then you hear like cracks as those rounds start zipping by. But it's your um, first time. Had you know even those are 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 gunshots as opposed to like sand hitting the the helicopter blades. The the guys around me start running towards the flashes. Okay, that's how I knew it was gunfire, because it's a a commonality in everybody in my occupation is we run towards the sound of gunfire. Why is that? Because um, that's where the fight is. Mm. We want to be in a fight. Mm. You know, we're not there to army special forces rangers special forces snipers. We're not we're not there to like hang out. Mm. Um, we're there to kill bad people. Mm-hmm. So where the gunfire is, that's where the bad guys are. <laughs> so we try to go there. Um, but running towards it, when they see you and you don't necessarily see them other than the flashes, is why is that the solution? We are better at everything than they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're shooting towards the sound. They're shooting towards helicopters. Everything's black. We're good at what we do. So there's no, um, they can't see the rudder wash. They can't see the little lights that we see through our night vision goggles. You know, they can't see, you know, we're using the best technology on the planet. Um, They can't see our IR lasers that are pointing towards their muzzle flashes. They can't see any of that. Mm. Um, They just hear helicopters and they're on the top of their roofs shooting at helicopters. Where we inversely, we see their faces. You know, we we see what they're wearing, what gun they're carrying, and uh, and we're running right at them. And then then what happened then? well, once you get to the gunfire and you are in a gunfight, you uh, the thing about gunfights is they're over pretty fast when uh, when people are good at what they do. So um, good gunfights are over quick, and hopefully that's always the way that it is. The ones that go on for a long time, those those, those are brutal and ugly. But this one was over quickly. Uh, that once we were advancing on target, they they pretty much they're kind of they're they're cowards. You know, they're like little cockroaches. We shine a little light on them and they just want to scurry into corners. So as soon as they realize they're fighting against something that's uh, they don't quite understand, they're just scattering. You know, they're running, r- r- literally running for their life. But part of that is their strategy too, right? Like they're kind of like in and out and then they're back at home yeah, is eating that a, dinner. Is that a strategy? I, you're uh, 100% correct. That, that is exactly perfect what they do. That it, they, uh, they will stick a gun over a rooftop, shoot, and then they'll go downstairs, surround themselves with their the women and children, and have dinner. Right. That how is 
they're putting their own children and their family at risk. Right. So it's not a, I'm not saying it's an ethical strategy. No, but, but it, is, it is completely their strategy, which then really solidifies the cowardice of who they are and the way that they fight. It's, it's disgusting. It's not even the same species. I couldn't imagine doing anything within a thousand miles of my family and put, and, and then intentionally, consciously jeopardize their safety for the chance of me being able to evade or elude the consequences of what I did. So, so, so I'm going to ask just like naive questions. Mm. Are they just assuming I'm putting myself in their mindset, right? So are they assuming these Americans are not going to hurt uh, women and children. So I'm going to basically hide with my women and children and eat dinner. And like they, if the Americans barge in, I'll just say, what? We're, we're just eating dinner yeah. here. We, we're, we're a country of laws, mm-hmm. right? We, we stand by those laws all the way back to 1776, right? And we, we, we understand what those laws are and we follow the Geneva Convention. They, they perceive these laws as weaknesses and they perceive our kindness, the fact that we as a nation step up time and time again, trying to help poor in Africa and starving in South America. Like they, they, they don't look at that as strength. They look at it as weakness. So they don't, they look at our laws as opportunities for them to be cowards and hide behind them. Right. They look at our laws as loopholes say. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And that benevolence and generosity in our culture and, and, and the American desire to see justice and, and do things fairly that's weakness to them. And they try to take advantage of it, uh, which is what they do there. They try to leverage and angle so that they can hide behind their own women and children, even at their possible, the expense of their women and children for the chance they could get away. So so you started off, I mean, let's, let's reel it back. You started off basically uh, fascinated by uh, MMA, martial arts, all of these things to train the body in part as a reaction to, I guess you were taking like piano lessons and your dad wanted you like to, to do kind of harder stuff. Like what was, what was like the genesis of Tim Kennedy's superhero? (laughs) I, I quintessentially had the perfect childhood. I had an amazing father that wanted to see me succeed at anything that I did. I had a, a mother that believed in a complete human being, you know, that she could have sons and and a daughter that could be athletes, but we could also be scholars. We could also be musicians. We could, you know, we could be artists. Uh, we could be anything that we wanted, but that there had to be balance. If we were going to be good at one thing, there had to be inversely something that would hold that up, a foundation, cornerstones and pillars that, that would create something to be built upon. Um, so with my, with you know my dad's focus and diligence and hard work and, and dedication to education and athletics, um, my mom was like you know you're going to take piano lessons, you're going to go take art classes, you're going to go to ba- ballroom dancing and swing dancing, you're going to take your little sister and do a swing dancing competition with her. You know like that's, how old were you then? Oh, um, eight at first, were all you, the way up into high school. Were your friends making fun of you at all? Uh, at first, uh, if, if you took like a like maybe a a honey badger or a Tasmanian devil and, and then you injected him with um, a very quick, solid, soluble cocaine and then, and then took a cattle prod and like zapped him and put that thing in the corner for a while and starved him and then occasionally let him out. That was kind of like the energy level I was as a kid. So you had to be gentle or careful with how you dealt with Tim Kennedy because um, you just don't know what he's going to do. You know, right. it's like... You could crush someone. <laughs> well, so, I mean, there was games for these... Long periods of time, my big my bar, my brother's a giant, and all of his friends were giants. Wait, how tall are you? I am five eleven. You're five eleven. Yep. 
and you you crush people in ultimate fighting championships and your brother's a giant like what's yeah. what's he do is he like well, I mean even the in the Hulk <laughs> he is I mean he's a SWAT EOD police officer um in California What's EOD mean? Uh explosive ordnance disposal. So that so, means he goes in and something could explode in his face and he has to like unwire it or defuse it or capture it. I mean his job is to save lives. So if if somebody goes at the airport and drops off a bag and leaves it and then the airport's like, oh, we have to clear out Terminal 3 because we have an unknown package. Uh, he's the guy that's going to go and get that package. And Has he ever found like an actual bomb in one of those situations? I always think that's fake. No, he, he's on numerous occasions, especially where he is in California, and just for his protection, I don't want to talk about where he is. Um, it deals with a lot of drug cartels. Mm. And uh, they're running drugs up and down, and they'll oftentimes plant explosives to protect the drugs that they're carrying, booby traps. And uh, numerous times he, he has found explosives with, that were with designed with the intent to hurt people to protect a product. Like wh where are the explosives? Like what do you mean booby traps where? So sometimes it'll be a vehicle that if, unless you know how to get into it, where the drugs are, mm. and you if you open it incorrectly, the bombs will go off. Or um, there's a stash site where, hey, go to this building and in the building in this room, there's going to be a box. And in the box is the drugs. Leave the money and take the drugs. Um, well, it's a very specific box because the other box mm. might have explosives in it. Mm. So if, if, a, if a police officer gets a tip, hey, in, in, uh, in this building, you know, one, two, three, Freedom Way, in the back right corner, there's going to be some drugs in there that it's a drop spot and the cop goes in there, pops open the box, boom, you know, he's, he's dead. Hmm. So, 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 okay, this is your brother. Yeah. <laughs> and you're growing up in this environment, this family, your dad was in law enforcement and so on. And so now what was your, what was your initial foray into, okay, I'm going to follow their path in my own way? Um, it was take Tim and throw him in the pool game. That the, I think if you're going to go all the way back to figure out where the genesis of this was, it was my brother and all of his massive friends being like, let's pick Tim up and carry him to the pool and throw him in the pool. That sounds like a fun game, right? Um, well, I mean, they, they're good at it for maybe like one or two summers. Mm -hmm. And then it went from, you know, four or five, six of them being able to get me into the pool to um, them needing like eight or nine of them to get me in the pool. And then by the third summer, I'm not going in the pool and maybe three or four of them end up in the pool. Mm -hmm. And then by the fifth or sixth summer, it was Tim is not going in the pool. Most of them Stay are going to be him. bloody <laughs> and they're going to be drowned. And let's regretfully even try to do that. Cause is that because you started learning martial arts? And yeah, I, the, the mentality, you know, is I'd never had the victim like, oh no, they're coming to throw me in the pool again. It was like, this is a game and I can get better at this game. That was always my kind of mind frame. Well, how do you get better at it? Yeah, it's going to be martial arts. It's going to be, you know, speed. It's going to be um, violence of action. You know, it, what do you mean by violence of action? Uh, well, that's a, a, a term in the military that you can have a great plan, but if it's not executed violently, it can fail. You know, a good plan uh, that is extensively, strategically planned out, but then just kind of done has a really good chance to fail but even a, a a fair to decent plan that is executed violently through violence of action has a much better chance of succeeding i i guess 
That's that sounds really interesting, and I never heard that phrase before. Like, what's an example uh, where? Because I because I I I could understand it in some way, but yeah. uh, the idea that if you uh, a good plan not executed well is gonna all right. Fail. Right now, you and I we're locked in this room. Right. Okay. There's what do we have? Three doors, and uh, they start filling this room up with gas and we're going to die. Right. So we could sit here and man, that door right there that has one lock, maybe do you have, do you have a credit card on you? Maybe we can shimmy it and get that open mm-hmm. and uh, we'll be able to get that latch and be able to push it with both of our efforts. Or maybe that door, we can start pulling on it or this door, we can start pulling on it. Or I could pick up that piano or that speaker and I could throw it through that window. Mm-hmm. Right. One of it is just action. One of it is just straight up. I'm going to do with everything that I have with this one effort, singularity, like I'm completely with this sole idea that I'm going to do, or you could try to plan and then, and then maybe execute and that may not work. And then we'll go to the next thing and the next thing. Um, this, this, this isn't, um, an idea or approach that, that I came up with. I mean, this goes, Patton used it against Rommel. Um, you go, you go back to, uh, even, uh, Colonel Howe at, uh, the movie We Were Soldiers in one of the first wars of uh, battles of Vietnam, they were losing and they just turned the corner by said, all we're going to do from this point forward is be violent. You see them, you kill them. Hmm. You know, like napalm, bombs, everything we have, we just throw it at them. Hmm. Um, and uh, they survived, <laughs> you know. It seems like this can be used in, in many contexts in life. Like, uh, let's say, you know, someone's just mildly unhappy. <laughs> you know, this idea of taking like, you know, even Tony Robbins talks about like massive action, take massive action in your life, which sounds kind of similar, uh, uh, works better than just sort of uh, coming up with plans or ideas that that you may or may not act on. Plans are beautiful. I mean, we, we almost started this conversation with everybody has a plan until you get hit in the face. Right. You know, um, everybody can have a great plan until that first round bullet snaps by your head. Things change. Ultimately, you're going to do what you've prepared for and what you're capable of doing. So what, what training have you put in for that moment? What preparations have you made for that moment? And then when it comes to the execution at that moment, how committed are you to seeing it succeed? You know, um, for me, every time I reach that moment, I just go full blow. I go all in, you know, it's, uh, so like what's an instance of that? Um, Obviously, being one of the best fighters on the planet, mm-hmm. you know, garnering a handful of black belts in, in a different respect of martial arts. Uh, I think some good examples would be um, we're in Afghanistan and I was escorting some Czech special forces to their new fire base. And we knew that on our way there, the, the Taliban didn't want the, spe- the Czech special forces to be there. So they were going to try to stop us from getting there. And on our way to that base, they ambushed us. And it was an IED RPG initiated ambush. So they had a bomb in the ground. The bomb blew up, blew up the Humvee in front of us. And people then, died. Yeah, a bunch of people died. And then an RPG, which is like a rocket, slammed into the vehicle behind that one. And then uh, that was the beginning of was a three-day gunfight. Wow. And, uh, were you just lucky you weren't in those two vehicles? Not lucky. It was planned. Mm. We knew who was going to be in what order and which vehicles and where specific weapons were going to be so that when that moment happened, we had planned, we had trained 
And uh, strategically, we were ready for that. So from that moment, even though they initiated it, and that's never ideal, you always want the element of surprise, we slayed them. You know, it was three days of uh, two Special Forces ODAs and a bunch of Czech Special Forces guys dedicated to violence of action. How did you know where, the, where they were, given that they surprised you? So we had, ple- we, we had looked at our route. We knew that starting at point A, going to point B, right? Google Maps, this is my start location, this is my end location. And uh, so route planning, we were looking at where we were going to go. And then we looked at the most vulnerable places that we would be. So let's say start point A, finish point B. Then we numbered one through 10, the worst places for us to be ambushed. And at each of those places, we had pre-planned backup. And, you, and given vulnerable, you knew where they were invulnerable or trying to be. So you kind of had a, get, a good guess yeah. in advance where they would probably be. Yeah. So let's if we're going to be in a valley, which we were, um, we knew that they'd be they'd want an elevated position, so mm-hmm. they'd put their machine guns up on top, so they could have sh- down f- shooting fire on us, which mm-hmm. is preferred. And that down there, they would put up a bunch of type of explosives that if we try to get out of the vehicles and run to cover, they'd probably have bombs sitting in those areas of cover. Um, they would have kind of second and third efforts, guys on the ground hiding in places so that when we'd go to those places that we thought had cover, they would have extra shooters that could mm. kind of shoot us in the back. So, um, you know, we planned, okay, we know machine guns are going to be high, so let's get air cover. So we had AC-130s, which are like big, huge planes that have mortars and machine guns, like massive cannons. Mm. Um, and uh, then we had, you know, jets on station. We had helicopters, Apaches, and we had A-10s. So when these guys started lighting us up, you know, the moment they shot that one bullet, they gave away their position and we had massive gunpower. It still took three days. Oh, yeah. Why? Because where we were was not... um, So we started at A, we're going to B. We were like halfway to B. Mm -hmm. So from the time that that ambush started, we were in a gunfight all the way until we got to the fire base that the Czech Special Forces were going to be working out of. And does your brain then go into um, almost like high performance mode? Like, are you are you thinking of fear at all? Are you thinking of home? Are you thinking of like a girlfriend back home? Or, or what's, how do you kind of like take out conscious thought and fear to just focus on, obviously you have to be very present. You know, how do you do that? It's not like those things don't come in. You know, like there's a chance I'm not going to get out of this. I wish I would have, you know, told the girl back home I loved her. I wish I would have, you know, told this to my dad or to my brother. That those those get in there. But it's mission first. You know, if 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 I won't have a chance to do any of those things I wish I would have if I stop and obsess about those things about the past. You know, so you have to live in that present. You have to act violently in the present and you have to respond and do everything with every ounce of who you are in that moment if, you, if you're going to have a chance. So it seems like this is a good strategy for dealing with regret in general because you're either going to regret and get shot or you're going to take action and get to do the things eventually that you didn't do. Like, did you ever think, I wish I didn't come to the war because I'm getting shot at right now? I thought... On numerous occasions, I wish I didn't come to the war, but it had nothing to do with me being shot at. Um, being shot at is a byproduct of going to war. And I was eyes wide open, very, very aware of 
you know, what could potentially be the consequences and the ramifications of going to war. I, currently, it's really curious that people forget that that guy's dying in war. I think because we get into this drone fantasy now that we think it could all be like remote controlled. Yeah, you just said fantasy. Yeah. That's what it is. Right, because you have to be there to see what's happening. 100%. And if, if you do not want wars fought with drones and robots, that's the worst thing in the world. The only thing that... Why is that? Because it seems like if you can do that, that would and, and you have a strategic objective, like let's say... It removes the humanity out of everything. Mm. Like war is horrible, period. Like there's no way that you can make war good. War is the worst about our species. It's disgusting. It's it's where we see the most unimaginable horrors. So 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 why'd you go and, and I'm gonna play I, I'm I'm apolitical, but I'm gonna play devil's advocate and, and I know what your stance is and we'll we'll talk about it, but why did you initially sign up to go? Um Evil exists, and for evil to continue to exist, and evil will prevail if good men stand back and do nothing. You know, if, if you're going to allow people to find a homosexual, take them up to the top of a 10-story building and push them off a roof, they're going to keep doing that. They're going to do it to everyone they can find. And then it will get worse, right? They're going to they're gonna find a beautiful tall brunette that's wearing a black dress, and that's right outside that door. And that dress is too short. I'm a stoner to death, right? That's their mentality. And there's, it's a slippery slope. And that's what evil can do and it's not ever met with, with justice. Well, okay, so, so being the devil's advocate, that's all over the world, right? We picked two countries, let's say Afghanistan and Iraq, to confront this issue. Yep. But like there's maybe 50 countries where there's some problem. Like, we, you know, we didn't take... Uh, massive action in Rwanda, for instance, until it was way too late, or, or we never took it. So, yeah. so when do you decide to to take action against evil? I, I think in both those instances, it was because they brought the fight to our doorstep. We don't have anybody from Rwanda flying planes into our buildings, mm. um, and they would have continued to do that as they are now. You know, as they are in Orlando, Florida, at a nightclub, or San Bernardino, or New Jersey, at a Marine Five K or at a Boston Marathon. Like this isn't the, this is not the beginning nor the end. Like we're only in the middle of, of the out, the backlash of um, them not being okay with the American ideals. So why, why was I there? It was to confront and face evil and try to say, no, you're, you're not gonna walk into, into an airport and get on a plane and fly a plane into one of our buildings. But now that's true for, let's say, the Taliban, who was protecting Osama bin Laden, obviously, but in Iraq, their connection to 9/11 is, you know, extremely unclear and maybe negligible. There was no, as far as we know, there was no weapons of mass destruction. What about that war? I, I think it's no different. I think um, Saddam or Assad or like we we, we list the tyrants mm. back to all the way back to Hitler. Mm. Um, it was Stalin's like if they, if they go unchecked, it just goes gets worse. And um, now I struggle. And I appreciate what you're saying in the perspective. I struggle every single day with the why of the thing. Like why were we there? And particularly, you know, you lost friends there. I'm yeah. assuming you saw people. You saw horrible things, and you might have. And you saw horrible things in families on both sides of the picture. There probably. 
and I don't want this to be taken out of context because I know a ton of my friends would be like, what is, what is Tim Cannon saying? I don't know if we truly effectively were changing the landscape of terrorism by fighting there. Hmm. You know, if I, if I go there and, and I kill a bad guy, his brothers are now passionate about killing us and his, and his kids are. And not only that, we kind of, um, let's say, defuse the, the check against Iran by weakening Iraq. Because it's not like we're going to invade Iran. We used to let Iraq do that. Yeah. So that was kind of like a check and balance a little bit. And I, I don't know anything, by the way. I'm just kind of making this up as I go along. No, but you're, you're spot on. And, but that logic, if, if it, the, the macro greater good bullshit, mm. you, you can't go down that rabbit hole. You can't. You know, it's not a blue pill or a red pill. What I'm looking at is when I'm there and I see an 11-year-old girl that's covered with scars down her face because the Taliban said she can't go to school because she's a girl. So when she's walking to school, I'm going to throw acid on her. No, I, I cannot ex exist and let that happen. That, well, I just can't. That's so happening in Pakistan, right? So, so send me, hmm? send me, hmm. send me and my friends, send me to Africa, send me to South America. I mean, there's only so many of us. Like first and foremost, I, I get it. We have to take care of our own. You know, we have 350, 380 million people, some of which are struggling in our own country. Um, I don't have anybody that's running down the street throwing acid on little girls so they can't go to school. Hmm. Those guys I want to put in the ground. So the strategic landscape globally of what this does to the economics, if, all right, we left Iran unchecked because we weakened Iraq or we got better oil now because um, we were able to help the Saudis. I, I don't care. Mm. I don't. I, I care that there are bad, evil dudes that if they go unchecked, they're going to continue to do all of the horrors that we can't even dream about, that we don't even have in our worst nightmares. What's, what's the price if we accidentally, which of course has happened, uh, you know, hurt innocent people in Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah, so that's why maybe we shouldn't have drones. That's well, maybe why. No, I agree with you. We yeah. shouldn't have drones. I'm so against that, those as that's well. That's why it takes men and women who understand right and wrong what justice looks like, and they're there with the best intentions. Nobody's perfect. We're humans. Like I'm imperfect. I haven't played. <clears throat> I've made plenty of mistakes in war, but I've always tried to do the right thing. Before my very first deployment, my dad told me, just because you can doesn't mean you should. And you know, that was something that resonated with me through every single trip I've ever made. You know, like I, I could have killed a lot more guys than I did. And I killed a lot. But there were some that I was like, okay, that one's gonna that, that one's gonna I'm gonna let go. Like that I'm gonna let that guy run. So so you you we were talking to your dad outside and he mentioned a note you wrote where you quoted him saying that, um, but you you wrote you know something to the effect of I I you know I had to. Yeah. And so what was what was the situation? Um, we, we had a, we're doing a hard knock. So sometimes you can do a call out where you go to a house where you know terrorists are. Let's say it was a bomb maker's house. You don't want to go and put a charge on the door, blow the door up, and run inside, right? Because there's bombs potentially inside. Um, so you go outside and you tell everybody to come out and hopefully they do. And if they don't, then um, you know things escalate from there. And, and, do people and it, ever come out? Yeah. 
Because they're going to Guantanamo Bay after that. Like, why would no, they no, come no, out? No, 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 not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this, is, this isn't, you, know, you have a, a star on your chest and you're going to go be gassed. That's right. not what this is. Um, if you're in your house and you're having dinner and we're there and say, you come out of your house and you come out of your house and we go in your house and you don't have bombs. There's nothing you can do. You, that looks like a fantastic dinner. Here's some extra money. Um, so that you guys can have an even better dinner tomorrow night. Is that Sorry. true? You get, you would give hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you, w- w- <laughs> we don't want winning over hearts and minds. Like that's the the most beautiful thing about U.S. Army Special Forces, the Green Berets. We want to do everything by, with, and through the indigenous people. We are not like these dictators that roll in and tell you how it's going to be. Like, if you're evil. And you were like throwing acid on little girls or you're building bombs to, to, to blow up the embassy. That's like a different category. You're right. going to have to deal with the consequences of that. Like if, if you are living your life, live your life. Like if you're culturally different than us, fantastic. We'll even help and do anything that we can to facilitate you living your life. Um, but don't try to train people to get on a plane and fly them into buildings. So, so you would, you would, um, you would yell out the door, you know, come out. Sometimes, or sometimes we uh, blow your door in and run inside of your house. And and, and, uh, and so there was was there a situation, you know? Yeah. So we we had a multi entry point breach. So we had two or three doors and some windows that all exploded at the same time, and we all rush into the house at the same time. Violence of action, right? If you're on the receiving end of this, every door in your house just gets exploded inwards the windows shatter and within two to three seconds, there's a couple of dudes in every single room in your whole entire house with guns on you. Never gives you an opportunity to get ready for a fight, right? That's the idea. So we did that. And um, as soon as the first charge went off, this guy had obviously drilled and uh, trained and prepared for this moment because he expected that guys like us would come. And he ran over, had grabbed a gun and um, he was waiting down the hall with the gun pointed down the hall, waiting for us to come down that hallway. Um, And, you know, I was the kind of the first guy to see him and I knew my team was going to be going down that hallway. That's a choke point. So that's where all people get funneled into. A choke point is like a door or a hallway or staircase. And it's, um, it's it's a death zone. Right? If you don't stop in the door, because you're going to die. Don't stop in the hallway, you're going to die. Don't stop on the staircase, you're going to die. And this guy is sitting there with his machine gun pointed down the hallway. Um, so I don't really have a choice. You know, is I shoot him or he shoots my team members. So, and that's what that was. Um, so even though my dad's words were resonating, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. That's one of those where not only could I, but I really should. Because you were protecting not only your life, but lives of everybody behind you. Yeah. And, and it, he was trained, even though you're fully equipped wearing bulletproof everything, he was trained to do no, Nobody's whatever. wearing bulletproof anything ever. Yeah? No. That's that's a myth? Yeah, it's a myth. <laughs> so what's what what's it? Why aren't you wearing bulletproof everything? Uh, we're, we're not. There's no such thing as bulletproof everything. Okay. We, we wear um, about a 20-inch by 30-inch plate on the front of us that kind of protects our organs. Mm-hmm. Besides that, that's the only protection you have. Um, you know, you wear a helmet, which pair, which protects a portion of your head. It doesn't right. protect your face. It doesn't protect getting shot from your chin up into your brain or through your nose and your brain or through your eye into your brain. 
Um, you know, it doesn't protect you from getting shot from the side. That will go through your heart and both your lungs. It doesn't protect you know your balls. Nothing. No, no, nothing's protected. You were wear a bulletproof cup there or anything? No, there's like not, titanium, no, thirty inch metallic. No, you are very, very vulnerable, <laughs> in in uh, in a in a scary way. You know, you're maybe the first time you put on body body armor, you're like, wow, this is heavy. You're like, man, I feel. I feel good, but the first time you see somebody get shot and die wearing body armor, you're mm-hmm. like intimately aware of how vulnerable you are. So, so you shoot this guy, and like later, like what hap- What, what is the um, kind of psychological effect later when everything's kind of settled down and you have, and you get a chance to take a step back and and think about what happened? And I'm not saying there should be an effect one way or the other. By the way, I'm not I'm not saying that. Uh you could be feeling great that you helped all, and saved the lives of all your no, friends. No, if, if, if you, even saving your friends and killing a bad guy, like in the movies, like your high five moment, right? Mm-hmm. No, you took, just took a human life. Mm-hmm. Like that, that is something that echoes with you through eternity. That is something like every single person and every gunfight I've ever been in. I remember every moment of that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and there are things that, wake me up at night sometimes. There's things that prevent me from going to sleep sometimes. There's things that- Like what? M- mistakes I made. Like what? Sorry, sorry to repeat. Yeah, I mean, having a machine gun being stuck out a window, shooting at my teammates, and me throwing a grenade through the window that there's a machine gun in, and having that grenade go off. Does that sound like a good idea? Well, you don't really know, I guess, the full who's behind that uh, window. You don't. Like a guy- intentionally putting a bunch of women and kids in that same room with them. Right. Right? So do I let the guy with the machine gun continue to shoot up my team? Or do I throw a grenade through the window? Did you did you know have any sense of who we had behind or you just don't no, know? No, no. No idea. Hmm. Even if I did, even if I knew who was in that room, do you still throw the grenade? I guess... I guess I would think just to run, but I'm not in the situation, of course. I mean, run with the guy with the machine gun. So the 762 by 54 travels at 2,800 feet per second. Do you run 2,800 feet per second? And is there, can they aim with that? Like yes, if you're they just can zigzagging aim. around? I mean, I'm no. always thinking stupid yeah. things, so. Yeah, this is not movies. <laughs> right. Bullets that are 175 grain traveling 2,800 feet per second. Um, there's not zigzagging from that. So there's no way to, to save your life, basically, in the lives of your friends no, you without die. doing this. So did you find out later if there was anybody behind the window? Yeah, the moment the grenade goes off and all you hear is women and ki- children screaming and crying. Mm. And, but, but you still have to get away from the situation. Like you can't go back and kind of help or see what's happening. No, I, I, I stayed up for a week with the women and kids that were in that room. Mm. Stayed up where? Like, did they go to the hospital? Yeah, or? so uh, Special Forces ODA is comprised of um, a weapons tactics expert. That's me. Mm. And then there's a guy that is an explosive engineer. And then there is a communications expert. And uh, then there is a medical expert. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we have kind of with us traveling like a, a PA, almost a trauma surgeon, paramedic. You know, like a, just imagine like a paramedic on with crazy amount of training. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're with us all the time. So our team... It's all of us together. There's two guys in every single job. So when, when a moment like that happens, so we, we continue the fight until the fight is over. But then, well, I'm just going to let those women and kids with shrapnel from my grenade st- st- 
stay there and die slowly, you know? Like that's what I'm going to do. So so what do you so guys do? I'll revisit the that's the the difference between a drone mm. and and me mm. and all of my friends and anybody that I've ever worked with is every one of the guys that I've ever had the opportunity of serving with have the most beautiful souls in the world mm. that um that are capable of such tremendous violence but such remarkable compassion and and love. Mm-hmm. So the the battle, the gunfight, you know, it kind of wanes and uh, we go back and get everyone that we can and bring them back into our fire base, like the the base that we're working out of. Give them the best medical care that we can in the field and transport them to the best hospitals that we have access to. Um, and while you're doing this, do they grow to trust you? Do they realize that their husband or father or cousin or whatever just put them in a really bad situation? And, and, or does that, does this not factor in at all? Sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes, um, you know, the moms, there's nothing you can do to, there's no language, there's no communication that penetrates um, then love, right? And when a mom who sees their child that's hurting and sees, you know, wakes up from maybe the morphine that they're on and their eyes finally like open up for the first time in a couple of days and they see their own child being held by a guy like me that's sitting there crying as I'm, have, I've, I've been up for two days holding this baby, um, you know, listening to how difficult it is to breathe for this beautiful little thing and doing everything that I can with every access of medical equipment that we have to try to save this thing. And the mom sees that. Um, and maybe that can break through the barriers that have been built up for so long, all the lies that have been told about who we are and what, what we do. And they can see, not like there's an existential moment where like, oh, what, what an epiphany, right? Like that, that doesn't happen, but maybe we start breaking down some of those barriers and those walls that have been built up for so long because they see the compassion and care and hope um, to provide everything that we can to their family. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the Men's Warehouse National Suit Drive. Donate your gently used professional attire at any men's warehouse from July 1st through 31st and give a man a chance to transform his life. If you don't have a suit to give, don't worry. They're collecting all kinds of professional items, including sports coats, slacks, dress shirts, sportswear, outerwear, dress shoes, ties, and other accessories as well. Then all the donated items will be given directly to nonprofit organizations that distribute them throughout the community. The goal is to receive 275,000 donations. So be sure to spread the word by using the hashtag #GiveASuit. Visit www.mensWarehouse.com/national-suit-drive for more information. That's men's plural. Where spelled W-E-A-R house.com slash national dash suit dash drive. Remember the dashes. Remember that where is spelled W-E-A-R and you'll be all set. And when you donate, you'll receive a thank you coupon for 50% off of regular priced retail items or text 
NSD to 66960 to receive $10 off your purchase of $50 or more. The Men's Warehouse National Suit Drive. Give a suit, change a life, and congrats on the 10th anniversary, Men's Warehouse. Good luck. Beachbody On Demand is an online fitness streaming service that gives you unlimited access to a wide variety of highly effective world-class workouts personalized to meet your needs. Gives you the ability to stream over 600 different workouts from programs proven to deliver amazing results, including Pyo, P90X, 21 Day Fix, and more, all from your web-enabled device. You also get extensive nutritional content proven to help people achieve their health and fitness goals, including a brand new, first-of-its-kind cooking show for healthy weight loss and portion control called Fixate, which features over 100 recipe videos. So with step-by-step program guides, workout calendars, comprehensive nutrition plans, Fixate, and the motivation and support of a growing community, Beachbody On Demand is the total package. For me personally, I like what Beachbody calls the 10-minute trainer because sometimes I only have 10 minutes, and to be frank, sometimes I only want to exercise for 10 minutes, and this helps me check the box on physical every day, no matter what. I also like Challenge Du Jour because it gives me variety and it makes exercise feel a little bit more like play than the average just going to the gym and doing the same weights or treadmills or whatever, which I find to be totally boring. This is a brand new service, but already has over a million members. And now you can claim a free trial membership when you text James to 303030. Get full access to this entire platform for free. Just text James to 303030. Reeling it back a little bit, uh, you mentioned your special forces. What's the difference between that? And, and again, this is a stupid question, but what's the difference between that and like SEALs and other people who are there? Like, what, what, what's the difference in your training? We're just better at everything. Um, there's a, easy to say. Yeah, a <laughs> little, little rivalry between um, different branches of service and their respective special operations. Like units. the special forces, army and seals, navy. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and like, I wouldn't want to get in a gunfight with a navy seal on a boat, mm-hmm. right? Or maybe twenty feet in the water off the beach. Like he might be better at that than me. Um, Everything else that you can possibly imagine, we're probably better at. Um, like, what was the, how long did the training take? Like, what and are, were you selected in part because you were ordered this like black belt in all these different martial arts? And no, stuff? they don't care. They don't care about what you show up at selection with. Mm-hmm. Everything uh, you're stripped. You 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 have a number. Mm-hmm. There, you're, you have no name. You have no identity. You have no resume. You um, you show up to selection. And that selection lasts almost a month. And during that time, uh, they break you down through sleep deprivation, um, calorie deficits, and different m- kind of gates and measurements to see who they would want to go and start training. Now, just because you get selected doesn't mean you ever become a Green Beret, that you ever become a Special Forces, uh, Army Special Forces. They just see, okay, you now have the chassis. You know, you have the, just the, the bare minimum for us to start building on. So a month of them 
kind of destroying you in every way, and then the training begins. <laughs> yeah, you don't get to see who a person is until you strip them down. Like, what was the worst thing in that month? I don't even know about worst. Like, I enjoyed the entire experience. I loved... I mean, that's probably why you were selected, but yeah. there's still some stuff that I would consider the worst. They're weird. You know, it's weird. Yeah, you show up the right place at the right time with the right uniform. There's a there's a single white chalkboard, or there's a chalkboard, and there's white letters on it that say, "Be at this place with this equipment at this time." That's all it says. So when you show up, it says, "You know, bring your rucksack, which is like your backpack. Make sure it has 55 pounds, two quarts of water, at uh, 2 a.m." So you know, you go to bed at 11 because I've beaten you up all night. You just did your swim test. You just did your PT test. So go to bed at 11, crash. You wake up at 1230 or 1.30, make sure all your stuff's good. Go out and line at two. You're standing there. All right, see this chem light that's lit on the ground. You will run down this road for an unknown distance at whatever speed you want until you find a red chem light. When you find that chem light, turn around and come back to the green tent chem light. You don't know if it's 200 meters or 25 miles, hmm. you know, all you do is go. So do you go as fast as you can? Do you save a little in the tank? Do you, all they're doing is measuring who you are as a person. And then they start putting, then they start adding to that where they add somebody with you. And it's a team thing. You might have the worst guy in the world that can't do anything at all, but they don't care if you actually accomplish it. They care about how you interacted with that other person. And then they put a team of five and they give you a wheelbarrow that has no wheel and it doesn't have the right um, carrying handle, only has the left one. And they say, you need to move this 500 pounds of ammo four miles, go. So do you try to build a new handle? Do you have somebody hold up the front? Do you guys just, everybody pick it up and move it together? I mean, if you actually can do it or not, it does matter. But more importantly, how do you interact with the rest of these guys? So it's uh, they strip you down and then they start evaluating who you are as a person. Then after a month, if they like what they see, you get to start what is a one to three year training program. And what, what happens then? Then it gets bad. <laughs> then, uh, then you're actually being pissed on sometimes. Um, they're starving you. They're chasing you with dogs. They're teaching you what, you know, what food you can eat, what food will kill you. They're showing you how to, how to hide with people with thermal infrared night vision um, goggles. They're teaching how to jump out of airplanes. They're showing you how to, uh, you know, shoot a weapon, how to build explosives. Like they're, they're now preparing you to become a U.S. Army Special well, Forces like what's soldier. an ability you have that you would not have expected, you would have been able to develop that ability and it just even surprises you that you can do it? I, I think the most remarkable thing is we are warrior ambassadors. You could take a U.S. Army Special Forces soldier, you could drop him anywhere, and he will be able to adapt very quickly to, to the cultures, and he'll be able to assimilate into um, the people there. He'll he'll win over the hearts and minds. Because how? That's, so that's like a psychological thing. It, it's it's a uh, it's it's a it's a human condition thing. It's not just a psychological thing. It's it's something that um, we we have, but has to be nurtured. You know, you have you have the elitist that can just do whatever he wants because he has access to um, bottomless resources. You know, but what if you take that guy and you you, you throw him you know in, in in the jungle of Colombia, and you just need him to live 
with some of the farmers there. Uh, can he do it? You know, that, that can be nurtured. I think it's in there. And that's something that in the, in the training that we go through, you find that compassion, you find that soul, you find that heart. And once you understand humanity and you understand right and wrong and you understand just and unjust, um, these are things that transcend language and, and you know what hard work looks like and you know how to connect to other people. It's funny because you've used that phrase transcend language or transcend communication a couple of times. And it seems like this is an important part of what you learn because you're always going into other cultures and doing p- potentially very uh, unusual things <laughs> in those cultures. And so you have to be able to transcend uh, communication to some extent to bond a little bit. So what are some... What are some techniques you mentioned? Of course, you know, love and compassion, and being there when the mother wakes with the baby, and showing that you're there with her. Yeah. I guess with the farmer, you can go right alongside of him and start harvesting the field with him. What What are some? I, I, is it about mimicking? And and, and oh no, I, I think it it is about being the best of what a human can be. It's um when the farmer gets up at four thirty, you're up with him. Mm-hmm. You know, that when he steps out to move the plow, you're there pushing it with him. It's showing him what hard work looks like and that you're capable of it and that you're, that you're actually can, can do it. You know, people are like, oh yeah, I'll get up with him. Man, you, uh, 99% of Americans, you go down into a rural area of the world and try to work one day with the people that live there, you won't be able to walk the next day. We're just such... No, we're not used to it. A week. Um, we're sitting here in a podcast studio. Yeah. <laughs> Right, as we're drinking, how's, how's your smoothie? <laughs> yeah, my, my green light, my, mm-hmm. my green protein, kale. Mine's delicious. Mm. So first, it's, it's being able to project that desire to be there, that want to be there, the, the, the empathy, the compassion. And, um, and then, but you have to be able to ca- be capable to be with them in the moment, to be there in the present and to do what is expected of them in that culture. So not be so closed-minded that these are my ways. This is how I do things. I wake up, I have two. Which I think is the stereotype of like U.S. armed forces going into a country. And that stereotype might fit a lot of conventional forces. Mm -hmm. We are an, like we are in definition, an unconventional warfare unit. Mm -hmm. We are raised at, we're born at Fort Benning as an infantryman. And then we're raised at Fort Bragg. That's, Mm -hmm. that's kind of, the, the course of, of who we are as soldiers. And as we're being raised, we're being nurtured to exemplify and embody these characteristics of, of compassion and empathy and, and appreciate humanity. You know, we're taught, um, you know, geopolitical organization and economics so that when we can get to these countries, we can quickly appreciate um, how they do things, the way they do things, and maybe we can help them do those things, but we can quickly inject ourselves into what they do in the daily life and be capable of living with them side by side so we can do it by, with, and through them. So you've been to Iraq, you've been to Afghanistan. Do they kind of, like, what's what's a, an example where I almost see this Mission Impossible-like thing, like you get a tape recorder and there's a message on it, like now you're going to have to like parachute into this obscure country and fight this evil guy and bring down his empire. Yeah. Like well, what's like other odd situations or, or world situations that you've kind of been in other than Middle East? God, I wish it was that easy. Like, 
whoever's uh, in the government is listening to this, and I'm sure the CIA is because they're doing everything these days. Um, could you just send me a tape recorder that tells me what I'm supposed to do? That'd be great. <laughs> How it works is, um, hey, you need to go to Tanzania. And in Tanzania, they're having a huge poaching problem. What's poaching? Poaching is where they are going to kill protected animals uh, illegally. So like go kill the, the guys that go and poach rhinoceroses. They go in because um, to harvest their horns. Uh, poaching, drug smuggling, the black market for weapons, human trafficking, that's all black money. And black money supports terrorism. So, so I guess, and, and I'm always repeating how I'm naive and I'm asking stupid questions, but like I hear human trafficking and uh, I know this is like a very real problem in the world. What does it actually mean? Like are people, are like little girls being kidnapped and sold into sexual slavery? Does yes. that happen all over the place? Yes, here in the United States, here in Austin, Texas. And so, so what happens? Uh, so the, the, the source of the girls is limitless. Sometimes it's girls that are on vacation with their parents in the Caribbean and they're snatched. It's on the uh, border of Mexico in El Paso where they, they, they cross over and, they, and um, they go to a McDonald's and they just take kids out of the playground. Mm. Um, it, they're, they're bought, they're raised sometimes in Asia. Uh, they go to orphanages and they buy an entire group of girls between the ages of 10 and 15. And then who, but, so then they're raised, I guess, somehow. I don't know. Yeah, so you have like a madame who um, is called the bottom bitch. Mm -hmm. She's the girl that starts shaping how these girls work, behave, and perform. She immediately gets them addicted to a drug that they can control. So uh, then they travel to different events sometimes. Like here in the United States, uh, a lot of the major sporting events, the Super Bowl or the NBA playoffs, um, or South by Southwest or mm -hmm. Austin City Limits, uh, F1. They bring the girls to the events and then, then, then they use them as prostitutes. Um, some people have a taste specifically for those young girls. Um, you know, the thing in my occupation is all from poaching to human trafficking to drug smuggling to weapons, all of that money is one degree separated from terrorism. So all of those activities support terrorists. And inversely, terrorists support all of those activities. So when I'm, when I'm in Tanzania doing anti-poaching operations, it is to really effectively prevent terrorism hmm. and save lives and save animals. Um, it, when I'm on the coast of Somalia doing uh, counter-piracy stuff, it's the same thing. You know, Or I'm in South America working against the drug cartels or I'm in Houston at the Super Bowl. It's fighting human trafficking for the exact same thing. Do you ever like break into some, I guess, brothel or whatever and kind of like, what, what are, can these girls be after they've been in drugs for so many years and uh, can they get back to a normal life? And then you, you throw the bad guys in jail or what, what happens? <laughs> That's, uh, sounds like we're in a movie, right? I, it not, does. That's why yeah. I'm so disconnected from probably the reality of all these things. So let's, you're, you're pretty good at economics. Let's look at this economically. Remove the girls and the names and the faces off of it. Um, we have five girls, right? Um, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Um, if I go and I fake like I'm a John and I go and I say, hey, meet me at the street corner 
to uh, so we can link up and go have a good time. She shows up. I'm like, hey, congratulations, you've been saved, right? That that girl right here. Let's say she she was the 14 year old. She's just removed. She's just a product. We take mm-hmm. her off the shelf. Mm-hmm. Does that change anything economically for the trafficker? Right. Nothing. Nothing at all. He just has a new slot that he takes a younger girl and he inserts her and the whole thing shifts. So there hasn't been an interruption in his revenue stream. He's still making the same exact money, amount of money. He hasn't lost anything because he doesn't care about his product. All he cares about is money. And we effectively haven't changed anything. So going in and like snatching a girl here and there, it doesn't do anything. It sounds horrible. If you want to affect change, you want to save these girls' lives. One, you have to look at the root of the problem, which is disgusting dudes going to spend money to, to fight these girls. So you have to, you have to fight the, that's a cultural problem, the, the fast food solution. Let's find the quick, easy fix. And then the opposite end, the tail of that coin is going and specifically finding the trafficker and interrupting either his revenue stream or his ability to traffic these girls, which is sticking him in jail. And how do you, is it, are there guys undercover all throughout the organization? Like, how do you find him? That's top secret. <laughs> <laughs> is that, but do you get involved in that? Yeah. And you, are you still involved in that? Yeah. So, because you're still kind of like in and out of the military, right? Like one special forces, always special forces. Yeah, is that the, the day I die. Yeah, pretty. Really? Yeah. Like when you're 50, 60. They might let me go. Yeah. <laughs> like at some point they'd be like, ah. Because they've tra- spent so much money training you and yeah. there's only so many people they could train. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, if you take a population of a million, go to special forces selection, maybe four or 500 will be selected. And of the four or 500, maybe one or 200 will complete training. Hmm. Um, and then some of those will die. Not some. A lot. So, so do you feel like it's lucky that you've survived to some extent? Like what percent luck, what percent skill do you think it is that you're, that you're here right now? I don't know, 50-50. 50-50? And uh, so, so when you're here, up until recently, you've been kind of heavily involved in Mixed martial, mixed martial arts competitions, ultimate fighting championship competitions. I guess as an amateur, you had something like a, what was it, a 30-0 uh, score, and then you went professional. Uh, I forget, have you won any kind of like lightweight, heavyweight championships? I fought for the world title twice, and I lost twice. So um, I've, I've been ranked top 10 in the world for hell, almost 15 years. And um, I, I reached the pinnacle of, of the sport, which was to fight for the world title twice. Which particular sport? Because I feel like there's a lot of uh, slices of the sport. No, the, the sport itself is mixed martial arts. Mm-hmm. So regardless of what style of martial arts you have, if you're a jujitsu guy or you're a boxer, all of those different styles, when you come to mixed martial arts, um, it's put on display. So you really are just the best fighter on the planet. Um, you know, if... if Manny Pacquiao or Floyd Mayweather stepped into the cage and tried to box one of us, you know, we take him to the ground and we choke him out. Um, Yeah, if he, like, let's say you take a guy like that who's such an expert at one martial art, call it boxing, and he hasn't really studied, have they studied the others or can you just like instantly just take him down? No, that'd be the, like, It'd be the, the fastest fight ever. Yeah, the easiest fight is to fight a guy like Floyd Mayweather. You know, like he, he would be unconscious in seconds. And you and you've studied though. There's, so there's this one family, the the Gracie family, which you you've studied with them. You've also fought against them. You know, in some cases. Uh, uh, what? Who who are they? Like, what made them special in kind of being the best? 
family of fighters in the world. Yeah. The uh, did you like move into their house? <laughs> like what happened? Yeah. So I'm I, I'm a Hoyler black belt, and there the lineage of that family kind of goes up back to one guy, and that one guy trained under he was the first non-Japanese guy to train in Japanese jiu-jitsu. So then he took what he thought were the good components of jiu-jitsu and he bought it down to Brazil. And then once he got to Brazil, he created his own, the things that he was good at, the things that worked well for him, he then created his, kind of like his own system, adapting some of the things from Japanese jiu-jitsu, which then was Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And that was the very first Gracie. And he had a bunch of kids and those kids had a bunch of kids. So then the it's Gracie- It's like the, the, the Rothschilds of like totally. death. Uh, <laughs> yeah, of, of choking people unconscious. Yeah. That, is, uh, that would be the Gracie family. And, and why did you, how did you get to study with them? I, I was a fairly decent fighter. You know, I was really hard to beat. I didn't- um, think too highly of myself. There's there an element of, of humility that I always wanted to get better. So they- well, Why didn't you think highly of yourself? This is after, this is like post everything that you've trained for and everything. You were already like on top of the world in, in so many ways. The, I think one of the elements of being a martial artist is a desire to always improve. Like you're, you're never a master. You know, you just keep working diligently, um, humbly to get better. And a lot of people don't have that. They kind of get full of, of themselves or in the things that they've done. Instead of, instead of caring about what you've done, let's look at like what there is still more to do. And um, so you know, I was taken in and was able to train with them and ultimately receive my black belt from Hoyler Gracie. And then you also fought uh, Roger Gracie, right? And defeated him. He's good. Was was that like? Was he like, hey, we trained you. How could you? Yeah, the. But that's a great example. Had I put on a, a gi, a jujitsu like uniform, and he and I grappled in a jujitsu competition, he probably would have tore my arms off and beat me to death with him. Mm. Uh, but that that is the uniqueness about the sport is no matter how good you are at one thing, ultimately comes down to how well you can do them all or prevent something from somebody from doing what they're good at. So you were able to kind of use elements from some other martial art or whatever. Yeah, to- I, I boxed him. I kickboxed him. Mm-hmm. And uh, the two times we were on the ground, I was like, ah, this was a bad idea. You know, like, I don't want to be down here with Hodger Gracie because I'll, I'll wake up covered in my own pee and blood probably. <laughs> And so you, you've prevented him from taking you to the ground. Yeah. The only times that we went to the ground are the times that I chose to be there and I'd be in positions that were, that essentially neutralized his offense. And the times that we we're on, that we were on our feet, I just brutalized him. So what's, what's, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, an aspect, kind of this meta aspect of learning, which is that to always keep this humility, you know, if you want to learn. So what's, what, what would you say is the art of learning? Like you, let's say you want to learn a new field, whether it's another martial art or you want to learn about a new uh, anything, what's, what's kind of the, the, the art of learning, the five steps, say, you would, you would take to, learn, to master something new? What's mastery to you? Having a spirit of adventure, mm-hmm. you know, or some, you, want, you want the desire to go learn something new, that, that in itself, and that's just an explorer, right? When you're a kid, you're like, I want to be an explorer. Let's get a flashlight and go to the top of the mountain. Like, don't ever lose that. So have the, Why do you think people lose that? It's so easy to be comfortable. You know, it's, it's easy to, to know where the Starbucks is on your street corner and go grab that crappy cup of coffee. And then you'll go to your office where your assistant is going to give you your calendar for the day. And you, fuck that. 
what is that? Is that us? Is that, is that us really peaking as a species? Mm. Like, where was the sense of us going to the moon? Mm. You know, and like w- walking amongst the stars. You know, like that. That that is that is okay. us perfecting the human condition. So, so let's say someone's listening to this and they say uh, they're 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 going to work and they're going to Starbucks on the way and they're thinking to myself. They're Gross thinking coffee. themselves. Don't do that. I, I've got a mortgage. I've got six kids to raise and put through college. I've got you know to finish this project for my boss. Like I, I don't know what he's saying. Like how can they? They can't change overnight. And and I'm not even blaming them. I'm not saying this is bad about anything. But what's some first steps they can take to g- regain that sense of exploration? Because they they hear you also on that. Everybody wants that childlike sense of exploration again. So what's how can you start to get it back? one percent change you know from from what you did yesterday to today look to do something one percent different you know you don't have to change you can't change overnight it's impossible and you know you do have a mortgage you do have a a car payment you know your kids are going to private school whatever blah 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 blah. look for one thing that you can change just incrementally and and do that your kids will your children they will see that change they're we're such a cool beautiful species that especially children they're so brilliant and they they pick up on the nuances and the subtle changes of anything and they that will encourage and empower them you know i I look at my dad and i knew what he was good at you know he he was i think one of the best water polo players on the planet like i saw him play water polo a handful of times he was always trying to do something new you know even at the in the ripe old age of he is right now he came and he was shooting with a whole bunch of world-class shooting guys and special forces guys and SWAT guys here, um, my friends, just because it was different. And he's like, hey, when are we going again? You know, that, that is something that can inspire. So first, just 1% change from yesterday to today. Don't go buy Starbucks. Go stop, try a new coffee shop. It can be that easy. You know, go and grab a, so you've been reading those, books that just leech your mind because um, as you're on the star Wandu and you have your magical powers that are going to, no, no, go, go, go pick up a book about somebody that did something beautiful and great, that created something, that built something, that landed on something and look at that person and the things that they did and ask why, hmm. right? And then that inspiration will come, that desire to explore and to, to find adventure will be there. So this, so this 1%, and then this kind of recreation of inspiration and desire inside of you, which could be cultivated. It's almost like a snake charmer charming yeah. the, the snake out. But uh, so what that's, let's say step one or two, what's the next step? Hard work. Uh, you know, th- those first two things are contagious. Uh, but, but, but hard work, it seems like you also have to have someone who tells you what the hard work is. You don't want to do the wrong hard work. Yes and no. I mean, let's go back to the violence of action. Like so- sometimes just doing is is going to be people are like man what what martial arts should i do man you've done so many should i should i do muay thai you know should i do a shotokan karate should i do taekwondo man just start sometimes it's just go do anything and then you'll figure it out yourself what what i did doesn't necessarily mean that you need to do that you know I, people ask me like you know should i join the military should i be navy should i be a navy seal or should i be a green beret should i be an army ranger should i go to marsoc like it's going to be hard regardless and ultimately, I don't want to even want to tell you what to do because it has to be your choice. And some and that choice is going to be different for every every person. So sometimes you just have to do. So 
sometimes the hard work is going to be one of the things that will shape and mold the experience and you coming out on the far end, you making mistake, you, man, I worked so hard and that was a waste. So I'm going to maybe be a little bit smarter about how I go about it next time. And through that experience, you're going to get better. You know, it's the refiner's fire. You know, you're going to get pounded and you're going to be beaten. And on the far side of that, you're going to be a better pure metal than you were before because you went through that hardship. So sometimes it's just do. So, so would you say that's kind of like the, the final step because you're doing and then you're refining and it's this repeat sort of thing? Like how many years of this to Forever. mastery? There's no such thing as mastery. Like you, like you came here. I know you came here the other day. We, we messed up the schedules. You were co- coming from your workout. Were you coming from your workout today? I was, yeah. So what's your, what was your workout today? Completely different than it was the other day. Yeah. Um, today we were doing one rep power cleans. What's uh, that? It's an Olympic lift where you're taking the weight off the floor and you're getting it to your chest. However you can do that. Um, and then we were doing a tire drag. So we had like this maybe 50 pound tire that you're going to drag 400 meters downhill and then turn around and sprint 400 meters uphill. Um, which horrible. It's just horrible. And then we went from there into like this uh, circuit series of, of hypertrophy muscle fatigue. What's that? Uh, so we're doing like high volume reps of, of a bunch of different full body exercises. Like what's a, what's a full body exercise? I don't, this is how cool it's like. Yeah, like a burpee or flutter kicks and sit-ups and um, thrusters, like just going, making your whole body, all the muscles in your body be used at one time. Uh, that, that would be like a full body. We're like, so if I'm sitting here doing curls, that's only working my biceps, right? right? Or if I'm standing here just pressing weight over my head, that is only working my shoulders. Whereas if I stand up and I lay down on the ground and then I do a push up to stand up to my feet and then go from my feet, I jump up in the air, that's using my whole entire body. Huh. Um, so then we finish the workout with, you know, a few rounds of full body movements. And then how long did you work out? About an hour and 15 minutes. Did you do that every day? Every Seven day. days a week? Yeah, and then uh, train it again at night or in the afternoon. And now all along, you also have started like a clothing line, right? Yeah, I have a shoe company, a clothing line, a defensive tactics company, and a government contracting company, and a distribution fulfillment center. So, okay, let me get my head around this. So, shoe company? Mm-hmm. What's uh, are you wearing the shoes now? No, these were my workout shoes. These are okay. actually super sweaty and gross right now. So, so what shoes do you have? They're called Whoobies. Mm-hmm. A Whoobie is like your favorite thing that you're ever issued in the army. It's like your your favorite binky blanket, like your uh-huh. teddy bear. Um, it's really soft. So that's the name of our company. Whoobies. You're issued like a, a teddy bear. It's <laughs> that's how we treat it. Uh-huh. Your Whoobie. Um, it's actually just a, a the the nomenclature for it is a poncho liner. It's a blanket that goes inside of your poncho to keep you warm, but it's really really soft. It feels like silk, uh-huh. and when everything around you is horrible and painful, you actually have one piece of of which is a blanket that keeps you warm and is soft. So uh-huh. we really like it. Um, the Whoobies are just shoes. They look like Vans, but they're they're designed uh, by a bunch of special operations guys to do very crazy things. Like what? Um, so the back of them where the sole, uh, meets, you can actually, our scuba diving fins can clip and lock in there, but it looks like a regular sole. Um, the bottom of them are perfectly flat and it's a very thin rubber, similar to like a Firestone tire that, um, 
you can power lift in, you can sprint in them. Um, they're made of sail canvas and they have drain holes. So you can hop in the water. So they're the exact height that the military requires for us to jump out of airplanes. So I can, I've jumped out of airplanes with them. I've gone scuba diving with them. Um, I've, uh, have you worn a tuxedo with them? <laughs> I, yeah, I have not. You could though. It's okay. I don't wear tuxedos. I'm thinking of getting one though. Yeah. Well, if you'd get one, you could definitely, your style would go well with a pair of whoobies. All right, good. Yeah. And, and then the, what's the next clothing line? What's- Ranger Up. It's a, it's a kind of military lifestyle brand and we make obnoxious military, military t-shirts and uh, we have licensing agreement with the army. So we, we produce all of the like 101st Airborne or 82nd Airborne, um, third ID. We make all of their clothing. And uh, I think we... That, that must do really well. You're making all their clothing. Yeah, it's a great company. So, I mean... You this shirt right here, you know, take classics, come and take it. So these businesses must be doing well for you. They're, they're great companies. I'm proud to be part of and with like-minded guys that, that work hard. Um, what about the government contracting company? What is that? It sounds mercenary like. It is very mercenary like. So, like, do other governments contract you? <laughs> no, we uh, we're we're barrel chested freedom fighters, so we, we like go America, go team but, America. But the army can also just call you for free. So why do they have to contract you? They can, because um, there are things that uh, I won't necessarily do that a government contracting company can do. And, mm-hmm. and and vice versa, there's things that contracting companies can't do, but soldiers can. So uh, sometimes we're just training. So with all of the things that I've done in my life, I've obviously built up a vast knowledge of things that other people want to learn. So we sometimes even civilians or or law enforcement, you know, SWAT guys and police officers come to our courses to learn how to shoot a gun better, mm-hmm. how to use a sniper rifle how to understand situational awareness, uh, awareness for profiling, like biometrics and atmospherics, um, how to hotwire a car, how to pick handcuffs. You know, Is it still possible to hotwire a car? It's pretty difficult now. Now, now, now one of the, the important things is to find a nice old car huh. <laughs> and do that one. Like, can you, like, like, so you mentioned before a situation, what if this room starts filling up with gas? Can you, like, pick locks on the doors if they're all locked? Or, yeah. So, so... Okay, so this is the stupidest question I'll ask. Jason Bourne, how realistic is his abilities? <laughs> can you do like what he does if you're like thrown into a situation <laughs> and you're arrested and you're handcuffed? Can you basically beat everyone up, get the keys, take the handcuffs off, and just walk out calmly? Ah, uh, Jason Bourne. Uh, he's like the worst of us, the way that he's portrayed. Yeah. It's all of the things that like we never want to have to do. And if you're good at your job, you're not going to do any of the things that Jason Bourne ever does. Like what? Uh, be handcuffed. Right. Like, okay. I don't think I've ever been handcuffed while I've been in a work capacity. Uh-huh. You know, like it's like, yeah, let's uh, get arrested by Interpol. Uh-huh. That's bad. Uh-huh. Don't, I've never let, like, that doesn't happen. Or I've been in Africa and the government's like, oh, you're not supposed to be here trying to catch poachers. So I'm going to put handcuffs on you. It means you're bad at your job. So Jason Bourne sucks at what he does. But the things that, um, he also glamorizes the things that we do on a normal basis. You know, like where, where I parked my car, you know, I looked at the cars, I looked at the vehicles that, that and the businesses that were across the street, kind of familiar with the area of town. That's looking at the atmospherics of kind of where I am. Um, the, like where the best place to find a gun, um, where kind of the how vulnerable I am and where I parked and where we're doing here, where where we are in the area of town. What's do you know what's directly across the street from us? No, 
Um, so it's it's the Mexican multicultural center, and they're kind of like the the embassy where the the immigrants are going right now to um, not be tracked down by ISIS or by ICE, uh, the immigration control and enforcement. That's directly across the street. So they're they're actually like black suburbans that were coming in and out. That was ICE that was either picking up people or dropping people off. Um, so you're like aware. You get into a situation like you knew right away. There's three doors and a window and something you could throw through the window. And so you get aware of every situation you're in and what you can do like right yeah. away. Yeah, absolutely. And but you know, I shape I shape the situations. So even though we're sitting here doing our interview, you know, there's my gun with my extra magazine sitting right next to you. Um Oh yeah, I didn't even see it. <laughs> yeah. Um you know, and inside my wallet is is a handcuff key and and a little round piece of metal that I could throw through any of the glass in here that would shatter it pretty quickly. I have a ceramic ball. So like, even though I'm kind of here, I've shaped my environment, so I'm not going to be a victim of it. Well, Tim, this has been such a fascinating experience for me. I've learned like a huge amount and you, you, you've you taught me a lot here. This is very, this is very fascinating. I hope we get a chance to, I want to process this and and then eventually sit down again and ask you more questions. I'm at your disposal. I, I also recommend, um, you did a great podcast with, with Joe Rogan. Uh, I recommend people listening to that one as well. Like, it was very interesting. And look, good luck with all the things you keep doing. I think the thing, the main takeaway I have is that this spirit of not stopping, like the constant training, but then also the you're you're doing all these businesses. You're always thinking of what, the next thing you could have an adventure with. And I think that's a that's an admirable skill. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, thanks for everything you do. Just keep your voice loud. Yeah, I, I, I try. Well, thanks, Tim, so much for coming on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I wanted to just say thank you to everyone who has rated and reviewed this podcast on iTunes. For instance, I'm going to give like a little humble, it's actually, it's not even a humble brag. It's like an ego brag. Tim at Aggrad, A-G-G-R-A-D said, this is my favorite podcast by far. Seriously, not hyperbole. James is a genius. He researches guests extensively and always seems to deliver the perfect question at the perfect time. He has a very high standard for guests. Every episode makes me think. Highly recommend. Tim, that was a really great review. Thank you. I'm going to try, hopefully, to keep the same standard of, of questions, and, and we'll see. But I really enjoy reading these. So, Tim, it means a lot to me, and I'm grateful for your support. 